I, was, I told first service, I said, is this not great? You get to come together with people that you love, people that you may not even know are going to be your best friends three years from now, and you just met them today. But in Christ, barriers come down, and that's a little bit of what we're going to look uh, at this week. We had the privilege of baptizing six people on Monday night. Uh, we did it up at Ironwood Country Club, yes. <clears throat> and uh, four of the six are still clean. And uh, no, <laughs> it, was, it was awesome. It was awesome. And we want to see, you know, our vision really is to see 1,000 people over the next 10 years come to know Jesus. And maybe we're undershooting it. I don't know. Um, but it was a privilege. And some of you are now back for the first time. We just went back to two services, as you know, last week. Second service, you get a little room to uh, spread out a little bit. And uh, just to let you know, I will be leaving for Israel. Some of you know that on Thursday. I'm leaving on Thanksgiving Day. 70 of our number will be joining me a few days later. I've got a few uh, seminary board meetings and things that I need to attend to while over there. And uh, then we're going to be nine or ten days on the ground, and our hope is Pastor Paul's going to preach uh, next Sunday, which we're all very excited about, two services. And then on December 2nd, we're, we will have filmed a service in Israel. I told you this last week. And uh, we'll just have one service on December 2nd. It'll be the 1030. Uh, you know how we do. We tend to go two services in November. We'll go back to one service in December and then back to two in January through April. So that's uh, the, just the flow of Church at the Red Door with uh, our snowbird kind of uh, vibe that we have here. So we're all excited about that. And if that goes all as planned, we're going uh, to be together on December 2nd just via, via live stream. So it's exciting. Are you ready for this? Are you ready to continue in the book of Ephesians? This is, has this been a good thing for you? I mean, this is, this is some deep stuff. I mean, these are, like I said, this is, this is kind of the quintessential place of all the great theological doctrines, some great by meaning some of them are very challenging, like predestination and being chosen before the foundations. We're going to get into something that I actually know quite a bit about, only as a function of experience this morning, and that's this whole concept, this understanding of the, the dividing wall between Jews and Gentiles coming down in Christ. And it's going to be, I believe, powerful if I can get the words out, which it may not happen, but I'll do the best I can. So let's pray that God would allow that to happen. Father, we thank you for this morning. We are so grateful, Jesus, for uh, the privilege of coming to you and your word. You were very clear through the prophet Isaiah that my, your word will not come back void, but will accomplish the task for which you sent it. And Lord, we're praying that that be the case this morning. Lord, help us. Uh, some of us, we want eyes to see and ears to hear. Help us work through some of our own prejudices that we may have, even coming in here this morning, and uh, get to the bottom of what you've said about your redemptive plan for all of humanity, not just the Jewish people, but the Gentiles as well. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Last week, we finished up in Ephesians chapter 2. Last 10 verses, and we kind of culminated the 10th verse with saying, look, you are God's workmanship created in Christ for good works. These things were prepared before the foundations of the earth. Now, that is crazy. <clears throat> I've heard it said that uh, some people perceive if you get saved that you go into like a parking lot for this metaphor. You go into a metaphorical parking lot. Some say you can go anywhere you want. You can park any spot. As long as you're in the kingdom, you can park in any spot. Others say, no, there is a specific parking place for you to park in based upon the gifts God's given you. 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, talk about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. 
based upon your background, your identity, what time and place you live in history, all those things, there is a particular parking place. I happen to ascribe to the latter. I do believe that there is a particular parking place each of us have to park our spiritual, our bodies while we are on this earth and to accomplish the task for which God's called us. We looked at that. Uh, etymologically, we get our word poem or poetry from poema, which is a Greek word that God, Paul uses here that has been translated as workmanship. You are God's poem. Some of you have let me know that you thought that was incredibly impactful. I'm just going to give you one example. There are thousands of examples already to give about this church and about your lives being written as poems by God's hand. <clears throat> about eight months ago, uh, I had a gentleman, part of our congregation here, and he asked if I would come over to their home, and I did. And we sat down. I just love spending time with this guy as I love spending time with many of you. And I sat down, and we t began to talk. He asked how the church was doing, et cetera, et cetera. And then he said, you know, my wife and I are not going to be able to go to Israel, but we would really like, the Lord really put it on our heart to help somebody or maybe several people go to Israel that did not have the financial ability to go to Israel. And, you know, the Israel trip, unfortunately for us, well, it's not unfortunate. You can go cheaper, but we, <laughs> I found that our demographic likes a little bit nicer hotels. So, uh, <clears throat> and uh, so the King David, so it's a, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a hefty price tag and some, and some were not able to go. And, and for that, I'm deeply regretful. Uh, but it's just kind of where we find ourselves. And so, I said, well, sure, I'll look. And I, said, and I said, I am so sorry. I am late already to my next meeting. I had, a, I had a Starbucks coffee meeting with a guy, and he'd come in. He was a single father. He'd come in, been impacted by Church of the Red Door for just a season, and then had left the valley and moved to Tennessee, and a precious guy that I really care for. And he had come back from Tennessee to do a gig that he had had here in the valley, already set up, and he just wanted to meet for a little bit, said he was watching on live stream, et, et cetera, et cetera. So we sat down, and we began to talk, and and I, I, I apologize for being late. I didn't tell him the reason why. I just said, I apologize for being late. And uh, I said, well, what was the reason you wanted to get together? He said, well, I just wanted to see you and tell you, you know, this was impactful for me. I'm watching every week. But I heard about your trip to Israel. And he said, he, he goes, he started to get kind of sheepish, you know. And he said, I don't even know how to say this. But he goes, I wanted, I cannot tell you how I've wanted to go to Israel my entire life, how I've wanted to go to Israel. He said, there's no way I can afford it. There is no way. He said, now, I know you kind of know some rich people, and, uh, <laughs> and maybe there is a, uh, you know, there is some kind of a patron out there that might be willing, and before he could get the words out, I said, you're in, and he was, you know, kind of flabbergasted by that, and I said, and then I, I thought I wasn't going to tell him, I was just going to leave, and I said, I can't not tell him. The reason I'm late is that I'd had a man call me to his house and tell me now, when you look at that, do you realize the beauty of that poem? Let me talk about workmanship. You talk about hearing the voice, what we learned at movie night, for those of you who were able to go, you know, the modern-day parable, Field of Dreams. Just listen to the voice. And here's a man having, allowing God to write the poem, the poetry of his life, feeling called to, not knowing that my very, and I've, I've taken, I don't have any trips to Israel I've taken. I've never had someone approach me and say, look, I can't go. I'd really like to go. I'd never, I never, and if you can help me find the money for it, I've just never had that happen. And that happened, and, you know, and so that's poetry, man. That's what the world doesn't get. That's why the Bible says you've got to taste and see that the Lord is good. 
You can't just stand afar and say, I don't believe in the Bible. It's got all these errors and the translation problems, and I don't believe in this because the Bible says this. And I, you know, you look at all these different kinds of things, and people stay arm's length. And then, and then the word actually tells us, no, 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 no. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Both of these men, and of course the precious man and his wife who were so generous in their, in their gift, both of them got to experience the supernatural reality of God. They got a bigger kick out of it than the guy who was going. And, and that's poetry. So that's what we looked at. All right, you ready to press on? We're going to move on. We're going to look at starting here in verse 11, okay? Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. We're going to call, I'm going to entitle this message, One New Man Backslash Shut Up. Okay, <laughs> so I'm sorry, that's just all I could come up with. But it fits perfectly. One new man, the great shut up. Just shut up. Okay, and you'll understand more as we go along here. So maybe I should pray again after that title. I don't know. All right, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. Are you ready? Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh. Who's a Gentile? A Gentile is just a non-Jew. In the Hebrew, it would say goyim, the nations, the, the peoples of other nations, a non-Jew. In the flesh, notice it says Gentiles in the flesh. Now, the re- there's a reason for adding that. You non-Jews in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ. Now, catch this. We've already known we're dead. I mean, Paul establishes that. You were dead in your transgressions and sins. You were dead. Spiritually completely kaput, we looked at it. Excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Before we go on, I want to look at this issue of circumcision and uncircumcision. What was happening all across the Mediterranean region, the Jews were now in diaspora as God had prophesied they would be. He said, if you don't obey my law, he told Moses, he'd go all the way back to Moses. I'm going to scatter them all over the planet. They were in diaspora. Jews were in every place, all over the Greco-Roman Empire, which was the dominant uh, empire of the day. They were spread out everywhere. There were synagogues built in various places. And they were beginning to turn on these Christians, these new Christians called the way early on and then later on in a derogatory fashion, quite frankly, began to be called Christians, Christians, following that guy that ostensibly was raised from the dead. And they're calling you uncircumcision. You Gentiles, they're calling you uncircumcision. Who's doing it? The so-called circumcision. The so-called circumcision. Well, first of all, what denotes a Jewish person anyway? Well, originally, covenantally, it was given to Abraham. Abraham was the first Jewish person. By definition, it wasn't referred to Jewish at that time. It would become a later uh, derivation as you go down through the ages here from Abraham uh, that the last... Two tribes standing in the southern kingdom would have been Benjamin and Judah. And then from Judah we get, that's where we derive the Jew or a Jewish person. And so here's the covenant he made with Abraham. Listen to the language. Genesis chapter 17, circumcision language. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. Ouch. You are to undergo circumcision. It will be a sign of the covenant between me and you for the generations to come. Every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised. 
Now, there was also a, a circumcision when they were older, too, as they were crossing the Jordan to begin to move into take land that God had promised, including those born in your household or bought with money from a foreigner, those who are not your offspring, whether born in your household or bought with your money, they must be circumcised. My covenant in your flesh, notice, in your flesh, is to be an everlasting covenant. How long does that last? Long time. Everlasting. Any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from the people, for he has broken my covenant. Now, so to distinguish... The descendants of Abraham through Isaac, to distinguish them, there was this covenantial seal of circumcision. Now, ultimately, it was not about circumcision. As we find out, Israel played out a role in which they were direct participants in a literal outrolling of what would eventually be the gospel. There were literal lambs being slaughtered. There would come a day when there would be a figurative lamb. His name would be Jesus. There was circumcision that happened in the foreskin of the flesh of these males before they were eight days old or at eight days not before but at eight at eight days and then that would be eventually a sign of the circumcision of the heart which we'll see very well elaborated by Paul in a later in a later passage here so what Paul is saying is look I realize you guys are called the uncircumcision like you're not part of this covenant you're out you're not part of us we're the Jewish people it's the God of Abraham Isaac and Jacob you are excluded from this, and in fact, our law tells us that you are to be excluded. We, sh- we can't intermarry with you, we can't have anything to do with you. You are not part of us. And Paul's addressing that to these Ephesians, and obviously, there was some influence among the Jewish community, and they said, Look, you're not part of this deal. And he says, That's the indictment they're making the so called circumcision, calling you uncircumcision, or you're not part of this deal. Verse 13, but now, back to Ephesians 2, verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by what? The blood of Christ. That's true for Jew or Gentile, remember. But you Gentiles, you have now been brought near by the blood of Jesus. That's why we are church at the red door, not church at the blue door or the yellow door. People say, what is that? You know, the reason that we made that our name is that some people go, what does that mean? Church of the Red Door, where'd that come from? Well, you should go on the website and find out and study it a little bit. It's a great way, to, great to share the gospel. Take them to Exodus chapter 12. The blood of the Lamb will be put on your doorpost, and you'll be passed over in judgment. It's a beautiful, short exposition of the gospel you can have with your neighbor. What church do you go to? Church of the Red Door. Oh, what does that mean? Well, we're brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups. Who are these two groups? Jew and non-Jew or Gentile into one. And I have, I have Jewish friends here this morning. We are one. In Christ, we are one. And broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity. Why was there enmity? Well, it's the law of commandments contained in ordinances so that in himself, that's Jesus, he might make the two into what? one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by it having put to death the enmity. In other words, the enmity is gone, and he came and preached peace to you who were far off, far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers, aliens, but fellow citizens with the saints who are of God's 
household. Does that mean all the Jewish community? No. There's always been a dichotomy between the believing Jewish community and the non-believing Jewish community, whether it be Jesus or whether it just be the basic words of the prophets. You could see that dichotomy in the time of Jesus. There were Jews who were believing into him and following him, and there were religious Jews very often who were not believing into him and not following him. There was a dichotomy. We can't just say, oh, we're adopted into the entire Jewish community, whether or not they even believe in God anymore or not. And most Jews today are secular and at their own, admit, at their own admission. We're, we're made one in Christ with the Jews who have been, what, covered by the blood of Jesus. And now as Gentiles, we've been covered by the blood of Jesus. And as a result, what, what's created out of this? A whole new creature, a whole new, one ma- a whole new man, and one new man, one spirit. Unity, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. And I've experienced that. If you have the privilege of going, and I do have the privilege of going with you uh, to Israel, you're going to see that. We're going to go right to the seminary, and we're going to see Arab professors there. We're going to have other Gentile prof- people in our group, and we'll have Jewish professors, and we'll all, it'll be a big love fest. It'll be, you'll, you won't sense any disunity. You'll sense absolute unity. And it's a picture of the, that the gospel, it works. The gospel works. In Christ, all the walls are bro- broken down. Now, you might ask, well, what, were, what was the enmity? What does that look like? Let me just give you an example. Deuteronomy chapter 7, words to Moses. Remember, Moses, God began to speak to Moses through the burning bush, and then he went and the people were released, and they came out and went into the wilderness, and then he began to speak to Moses again at Mount Sinai. So started with the bush, and he continues to speak to Moses, and this is what he says. Chapter 7, verse 1, Deuteronomy 7, verse 1. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to possess and drives out before you many nations. You say, is there enmity between Jews and Gentiles? Yes, as God had instructed. We'll see why that's the case in a minute. Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites, seven nations larger, stronger than you. Even when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, then are you ready? Okay, this is God's instruction through Moses. How to deal with the nations? Here's part of it. You ready? Destroy them totally. Is that enmity? I think so. Make no treaty with them. Show them no mercy. Do not intermarry with them. Don't give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. Why? Turn your children away from following me to serve other gods, and the Lord's anger will burn against you, and you will quickly be destroyed. In other words, God says, I want you to go in. Now, let me tell you something. People today, rightfully so, because they don't understand the grander narrative, people will say, that's genocide. That's why I won't read the Bible, or at least the Old Testament, because it's full of stuff like that, and I don't like that at all. You have to ask a deeper question. Why in the world would God instruct the Jewish people to go in and take that kind of possession of those nations? Well, first of all, you have to ask, does God have the right to inflict judgment in time? Yes, he does. He's the creator of the universe. Are we called that to do that today? Absolutely not. Post-cross, we're never to do this. In fact, we're to do the antithesis, the absolute opposite of this. We're to go in and lay down our lives for people that hate us. When people slap us on the face, we're to turn the other cheek. We're to give our lives so that they might have life. Well, why was God this way? Did God change his mind? Is God spurious back then and now he's just some, he became benevolent? Did God change? No, the Bible's clear that God doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So why did God have them 
do that? Well, I'll tell you for one reason, and that's so that the Messiah might be brought in. All the prophets had seen that God was going to bring the Messiah through the Jewish people. Had they not done that, they would have assimilated, been overtaken, and we wouldn't even know anything about Jewish people today. They wouldn't be an identifiable people group. Are any of the rest of those still identifiable people groups? Do you have any Hittite friends today? Any Girgashites? Any Amorites? Perizzites? Do you have any Hivites coming over for lunch after, after sermon today? But God said through the prophet Jeremiah, no, they will be a discernible people group before me forever. God's promise. Why? Because he displays his glory in Israel, primarily through Jesus the Messiah. Jesus had to come through the tribe of Judah. Okay? This was many moons before Jesus would hit the, hit the trail here to, towards the cross. 1,500 years, in fact. 500 years before King David and the Davidic covenant. So when you get a picture of this, don't be so quick to judge God. Say, God was seeing us today. And as a result, that was his, that was his plan. And you say, well, I don't like that plan. Well, you just got to understand how lost we were. What has the Bible already said? You're lost. We're, Gentiles, we, are a, we were, now, if you're a follower of Jesus, we were a mess. We were without God, without hope. We had nothing. This is the biggest problem in religion today. People start thinking what they bring to the table. Paul's very clear here. You non-Jews had nothing. In what way do we have nothing? Well, I want you to think that you, I want you just to, Go with me. Just think about this for a second. Think about this for a second. When we think about even our, the way we think about morals today, it's, you would say it's kind of a Western view of morality. There are many places you can go in the culture, uh, excuse me, around the world, and you're not going to get the same kind of morality, general baseline morality that we get here. That's just not true. There are some cultures that uh, women are still property in many ways. There are still some cultures, and you see all kinds of things. Jesus did more for women than any, any other human being, the God-man, ever on the planet. I mean, just telling husbands to love your wives, Paul, Holy Spirit through Paul, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. What are you talking about? <laughs> Jesus gave his life for the church. Husbands, give your wives, give your lives for your wives. And all the wives said? Thank you. And uh, <laughs> are you with me? So... A lot of this baseline morality, things that you just take for granted, even if you're a secularist, even if you're an atheist, and you say, I don't believe in any of this stuff, you have a baseline of morality even to fight. And there are uh, wars going on, and people say, well, I, I believe this, and I believe much of that baseline, just the egalitarian nature of the way we think about things in terms of people do have, they're created in the image of God, therefore they have a certain baseline, and so slavery was abolished because of primarily in many ways because of this. Not exclusively. I'm not saying this is the only place that you can find moral teaching, but that's true. We are very indebted to the Jewish forefathers who gave certainly through Moses and the, at least the moral code of the Ten Commandments. And then all what the prophets have said. How about the wisdom of Solomon? Have you ever thought about the wisdom of Solomon? You think, how impressive is that? What do you think the Queen of Sheba had to say after she saw the wisdom of Solomon? Well, let's look. First Kings 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 7. Listen to the language she uses. As a Gentile, she's looking at this Jewish king. And listen to what she says. Nevertheless, I did not believe the reports until I came and with my eyes I've seen it. And behold, half wasn't even told me. 
You exceed in wisdom and prosperity the report which I heard. This is awesome. How blessed are your men. How blessed are these your servants who stand before you continually and hear your wisdom. Wow, that's awesome. Blessed be the Lord your God who delighted in you to set on you Excuse me, to set you on the throne of Israel because the Lord loved Israel forever. Therefore, he made you king to do justice and righteousness. Here's a Gentile coming in and saying, wow, I wish, I wish our culture had this kind of wisdom. Not even half was told me. I was told it was extraordinary, but not even half of it was told me. See what God did in choosing the Jewish people. By the way, he, he told the descendants of Abraham through Isaac, he told them very clearly, I'm not doing this because you're some particularly special people. I'm doing this for my name. This is for my glory. And I'm going to bring in the Messiah, and it has to be through a people group. Why? Because I'm going to speak to that people group for hundreds of years in advance so that nobody will miss the Messiah when he comes, and they'll be accountable when he comes. As opposed to most religions who just have somebody just appear, and I was with some friends yesterday, and we were having this conversation, and I said, look, I'm never, I will never follow any teacher who wasn't raised from the dead. I mean, don't just tell me that here's what God says, and you say, well, what about the apostles? No, that was all subject to Christ and the infilling of the Holy Spirit. But if apart from Christ, you're going to come in and say, well, this happened and this happened, this happened. Well, prove it to me by being raised from the dead. Prove it to me by some historical account. You know, one of the beautiful things about believing into Jesus is this is an historical faith. People this has actually happened. This is not like the Greco-Roman Empire of their day. You know what they thought about eternal life? If you go back to some of the mythology that was there. So when you die, this is, what, this is kind of the mythology, and I don't think anybody deeply believed this. I mean, really? Most of their gods were just personifications of natural forces. It's really all they were. I mean, it was just myth. And in fact, the gods weren't even interested. Certainly the Greek gods were not even interested in humanity. They were a problem and, and people to be abused, they weren't certainly created in the image of the gods. But even think about eternal life. What would happen? Well, you would cross the great river Styx, S-T-Y-X, for those of you who know the 80s music, you know, the group Styx. Same thing. I never knew where they got that, but that was the river Styx in Greco-Roman mythology. And you had to hopefully have a coin. And the ferry master or the boat master, Karen, C-H-A-R-O-N, would need that coin and you would cross the great river sticks, symbolic of your death, and hopefully you get to the other side and then you get to spend eternity in the Elysian fields. That's about it. Now, do you think everybody really believed that? Well, they did. Some did ask when they, when they died, would you please... When you take my corpse, before you bury me or do whatever you're going to do, make sure and take a coin and put it in my mouth so that I'll have a coin to pay the ferry master so that I can go and live eternally in the Elysian fields. And, that, and so do you understand when Paul's saying, you were lost, <laughs> you were hopeless? I mean, really? I mean, that? No, we have an historical faith. Jesus appeared to many, many people after he was resurrected. There's deep reason to believe in the historical accuracy of Jesus' actual literal resurrection. And this bears it out. Writing hundreds and hundreds of years before he came, corroborated by his life, and then now the church is corroboration of what? 
there's coming a day when all of the Gentiles, all the nations are going to see this light and it's going to change their life. That's happening in your lifetime. Hopefully it's happened in your life. It doesn't get better from that for the Gentiles. I, there are many ways in which uh, the non-Jews were kind of looked at as uh, metaphorically. One would be that we were beasts, beasts of the field. Now, just bear with me. I'm, I'm asking you. I know we're going through a lot of Scripture, and I will be on time. I'm telling you. I'm going to be on time. But we're going through some Scripture. And I just think when you reread this in your private time and prayerfully or in your Bible study group or wherever you're meeting, this stuff's going to pop for you. But you have to have this really, again, as a theological mooring for your life that God came equally for Jews and Gentiles. And his, his purpose was not only to reconcile Jew and Gentile, but to even reconcile the nations among themselves. You know, where that in Christ, all walls are broken down. Not just the enmity of the law that stood between Jew and Gentile, but nations began to love nations in Christ. But how did you start? Now you're just, you're a crazy wild beast. I'm not offended by that. Maybe you're offended by that. I just got to the point, I'm like, he's right. Peter was right when he says, we're just all like a bunch of creatures of instinct, ready to be captured and killed. I mean, that's the language that Peter used. Why? Because we just go through our life, I want that, I want that, I want that, and we go after it. Some are a little more wise about it, a little more shrewd. But we, and in the end, we're just thinking, I just want what I want, and I just that's how I feel, and that's what I want, and that's what I'm going to do. And as a result, we, just, we live lives of monotony and strange things, and it usually ends in chaos anyway. Listen to what the language here, Isaiah chapter 56 Thus says the Lord, preserve justice and do righteousness, for my salvation is about to come and my righteousness is to be revealed. Now, as followers of Jesus, we know how he revealed his righteousness, and that was through the Messiah. Now, this is written again 700 years before the time of Jesus. How blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who takes hold of it, who keeps from profaning my Sabbath, the Sabbath, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Let not the foreigner foreigner, not inside the camp, outside, let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. Are you, are you getting this? Isaiah is seeing this unity between foreigners and the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and those, those who would believe. He's seeing that now. Don't say you're not part of the people. Let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree, for thus says the Lord. Eunuch? You ever remember any kind of eunuch in Scripture? Well, some argue that the very first Gentile, he probably was a convert, but maybe the first Gentile was in Acts chapter 8, was the Ethiopian eunuch. Who, remember, Philip was on his way to Gaza and was translated after he left. He's, he walks up and here's this eunuch. Chances are he was there for a, one of the feasts. For, uh, for the Jewish people, so he might have been, been a convert already, my proselyte, but he was there, and where did he just happen to be reading up in his chariot? Isaiah 53. He says, can you explain this to me? Who's this referring to? Philip gets up and says, it's referring to Jesus. He died. He, he lived. He was the Messiah. He was raised from the dead. We all saw it with our own two eyes. It's unbelievable. He said, what do I need to do? And he takes him right down there and baptizes him, just like we did on Monday night. Takes him down in there and baptizes the Ethiopian eunuch, and he takes off. And he's, he's really the foundation guy that goes back. Uh, and even many uh, Ethiopian Christians today mark their Heritage back to the Ethiopian eunuch. Unbelievable. And here, 700 years before, he said, don't let that eunuch say he's a dry tree. Now, 
He might have been dry physically, but he's not dry spiritually. It says, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath and choose what pleases me and hold fast my covenant, to them I will give in my house and within my walls a memorial and a name better than the sons and daughters. I'll give them an everlasting name which will never be cut off. Now listen, also the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, that's me. Maybe you if you're not Jewish here this morning. To minister to him and to love the name of the Lord. I love that. I love to minister to him and love the name of the Lord. To be his servants. I'm a bond slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'll tell you that straight up. Do I do it perfectly? No. But I identify as a bond slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. Everyone who keeps from profaning the Sabbath holds fast my covenant. Even those I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Do you see this language? Burn offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar. There's no literal altar anymore. Our sacrifices are raised hands. Our sacrifices are serving Jesus. And I could take you many places in the New Testament that talk about those being our current sacrifices. For my house will be called a house of prayer for who? Everybody. All nations. My house will be called a house of prayer for all people. The Lord God who gathers the dispersed of Israel declares yet others... I will gather to them, that's the Gentiles, to those already gathered, and then who are they? All you beasts of the field, all you beasts in the forest, come to eat. And then Jesus comes 700 years later and says, if you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have a part of me. That's not just some ceremony, and it doesn't mean literally. To eat Jesus' flesh and drink his blood, to drink his blood is to apply the atonement of his blood into your life so you're covered. And to eat his flesh is to do exactly what we're doing now. If you're here and haven't fallen asleep yet, you are here eating the flesh of Jesus by taking the word and saying, I believe it, and I will apply it to my life. Is that powerful? Now, see, Jesus... It wasn't just the Old Testament prophets that used this language. There was an encounter with Jesus. It's very powerful. Many of you will know it well. The Syrophoenician woman. So if you have your Bibles, please go to Matthew chapter 15. Catch this language. It's so important that you hear this. Don't be offended by being called a beast. I'm offended by that. I'm created in the image of God. Yes, but separate from God, you're hopeless. And without Christ, you're beast-like. I don't care how moral you think you are, you're still beast-like. That's the word. Now, unless you understand that, Jesus never really makes sense. You'll think, I'm a good person. I'm a virtuous person. I'm a kind person. I'm all these kinds of things. You still don't understand the gravity by which God demands your holiness. So Jesus went away. Here, we'll start in verse 21, Matthew 15, 21. Jesus went away from there and withdrew in the uh, district of Tyre and Sidon, and a Canaanite woman from that region came out. And began to cry out, saying, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David, please. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. And Jesus just immediately went, no, what did it say? And he did not even answer her a word. I thought Jesus was loving. I thought God was love. And if Jesus was God, why, why, this, why this brutal response? And his disciples came and implored him, saying, Send her away. She's driving us crazy. She's shouting after us. But he answered and said, I was only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Was that Jesus' total mission? Well, in his body for three and a half years, it was. But he'd already told Nicodemus that I came, John three sixteen, for God so loved the 
Jews? No, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So you've got to understand, folks, that it was always about the nations. Okay, now catch this. She came and began to bow down before him, saying, Lord, help me. Notice her response. She was just offended. She, 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 what are you talking about? I come from, I come from an incredible city, and, and, and we have a rich heritage. Who are you, you Jewish rabbi? Who are you to tell me? Are you calling me a dog? Hey, puffing out her chest. She was probably getting ready to go. She, no. Lord, you are the Lord. Help me. And he said, it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the wild beasts, the dogs. Is Jesus offending her? He's testing her to see if she has a heart that will be offended. She said, yes, Lord, but even the dogs feed on the crumbs that fall from the master's table. Let me tell you something. What she's saying here indirectly, I'm a Gentile. You guys have everything, covenants, glory, promises, forefathers. You have all of it. We're hopeless down here. We're helpless and hopeless. We're separated from God. Your God, we hear about your God. We want to be part of it, but you're right. Even the, even the dogs feed from the crumbs that fall, and I can see that she fell on her face. I have no doubt about it. And then Jesus said, your daughter's healed. And she was healed instantly by her faith and by her being able to acquiesce with Jesus, the Messiah, just called her a dog. Didn't bother because deep down she goes, you know what? I see my soul and I am a dog and you're the Lord. That's the beginning of all true followership of Jesus. Look, if you've never gone down that road before, you need to check and see if you are actually a follower of Jesus. That test must be passed by all. You don't go on your merit, you go on his. You were dead, you were separate, you were without hope. That's the beginning of a glorious journey. The beginning of a glorious journey with Jesus is not, look, Jesus, at all the things I bring to the table, aren't you glad that I was able to save most of myself? Thanks for finishing it up for me. No, you start hopeless and helpless. The second imagery, I don't want to go into it too deeply. You find it in Romans 11. But it's this imagery of not only are you wild beasts, uh, creatures of instinct, but not only that, but here's the second bad harbinger of what you really are and it's this you're a wild olive branch you're uncultivated you don't you really don't have you're not very you don't have it together here you're uncultivated you're wild and you're out there it's just a, it's saying the same thing in a different way and Romans 11 just says you were a wild olive branch you were cut off and grafted into this beautiful rich root which is Jesus and some of the natural branches who were connected to the covenants and, the, and all this, they didn't believe in the Messiah when he came, and they've been cut off and removed from the branch. Wow. I'm, are you saying I'm not a person of culture and I'm not well cultivated? And I, well, What are you saying here? That's what Paul's saying. Well, if you're not offended yet, you will be eventually by the next one. Not only are you, uncult you un uncultured and uncultivated, and not only you are a wild beast, were, hopefully, in Christ now no longer, you're also clueless. You know the story of Jonah. Jonah says, I am not Jonah, a good Jew, right? I am not preaching to those Ninevites. They were horrific people, by the way. These aren't just nice neighbors that need to hear the message of, 
of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. These were cruel, brutal people, the Ninevites. They worshipped, you know, the fish gods and all this other stuff. They were hopeless and without light. And what did God do? He said, I care about the Gentiles. And so Jonah says, I like your attitude, but I am headed the other way. Wow. (laughs) He gets in a boat, and he heads towards what would be modern-day Mallorca, which I spent quite a bit of time. It's off the coast of Spain. That would have been directly in line to Tarshish. And he takes off and takes off, and, of course, the storm hits. And what's going on here? And he says, it's my fault. They threw him off. A great fish swallows him, spits him back up back up and he goes okay and he reluctantly goes in and I can imagine what that sermon looked like something like all right you guys need to repent and everything because God's going to wipe you out you need to repent but I don't really care whether you do or not you you might want to repent and you know then they repented it was unbelievable it was this massive repentance and so he climbs the mountain overlooks in the city and and God allows a plant to grow over him it's a hot day shading him he's and he's has a moment where he's like okay now I'm in the shade and then God sends a worm eats the plant and now he's really upset and God's response the very last verse in Jonah the story of Jonah God simply says this in verse 11 of chapter 4 should I not have compassion on Nineveh the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who don't know the left hand their left hand from their right hand plus a lot of animals You're so concerned about your well-being? You need shade, Jonah? Is that what it is? You got to be concerned about your life? And there's all these people throughout this valley that you see down there, 120,000. They they don't know the difference between there. They're clueless. They're without hope. They need God. And you're concerned more about you being comfortable? Do you think God would, if Jesus came back today and asked us and was you think he would ask us the same thing? Are you more concerned about your comfort than all the people in this valley who don't know Jesus? You're more concerned? You know, sometimes God sends worms into your life to eat your shade so that you'll all of a sudden be confronted with your lack of compassion for those who desperately need it. So we're clueless, uncultivated beasts. Are you offended yet? Well, now the spotlight we'll turn to the Jewish community. And this is important. And we'll, we're winding down now. Romans chapter 12. I'll never forget the conversation I had. It was with a gentleman by the name of Seth Postel. Some of you may have met him. He's the dean of students at the seminary there in Israel. He was, try, he was struggling with the idea of really should he give his life and take his family and go back. I mean, he, he could have had a nice, cushy church job as a Jewish pastor here in the United States. But to go all the way back and live under that kind of you know, life and it was going to be a much more difficult life. And he began to wonder if this exposition of Romans 2 was correct. Are we all just Jews now that Jesus has, you know, that Jesus has saved us and circumcised our heart? Does that mean we're all Jews? Well, and, and we had this long conversation one evening about this particular passage, and I want to share it with you. What's important to understand is that Paul is not saying that everybody's a Jew. What he's saying that, yeah, we're spiritual descendants of Abraham, but we're not it said it's making a line of demarcation between those who are truly Jews and those who are not. Now, I know this sounds as smacks of anti-Semitism. I just was smacking of anti-Gentilism, right? Because what the Word does is it confronts all of us where we are. And Paul did the same thing. Listen to his language. Romans 2, verse 17. If you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God, and know his will and approve the things that are essential, being instructed out of the law. 
if he's speaking to his Jewish, Jewish community here. If you're so confident that you are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the, law, the embodiment of knowledge and the truth, you therefore who teach another, do you teach yourselves? Now, Jesus did the exact same thing. He took the law by those who had the law and saying, you guys are breaking the law through your traditions. You say, well, I've never committed adultery. Have you ever looked upon a woman with lust in your heart? You've committed adultery. Have you ever called anybody a fool? Speaking to his Jewish religious people that he loved. He said, are you so confident that you live by the law that you're, you're a guide to the blind and you're helping everybody, all the nations and all the earth? Are you so confident? Do you yourselves follow the law? Jesus did the same thing right here. It says, you who preach that one shall not steal, do you steal? If you say you shouldn't commit adultery, do you commit adultery? If you abhor idols, do you rob temples? If you boast in the law through your breaking of the law, do you dishonor God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. For indeed, circumcision is a value if you practice the law. But if you're a transgressor of the law, didn't Paul know everyone was a transgressor of the law, including himself? Yes. Your circumcision has become uncircumcision. So in the early, Paul, Paul, what Paul's saying to the Ephesians, he says the so-called circumcision are calling you uncircumcision. When in fact, your hearts have been circumcised, you're the truly circumcised. And they're, in fact, uncircumcision because their circumcision has become uncircumcision because they, they don't practice the law, and that was part of the deal with God. So if the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, will his, not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And he who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, will he not judge you who through having a letter of the law and circumcision are a transgressor of the law? Catch this in closing. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that which is of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. So what Paul was saying is that you want to truly be Jewish? If you think, then keep the law. Or believe into Jesus and be filled with his Spirit and have your heart circumcised see god gave everything to the jews everything they got everything they got the they were adopted they were they got the glory the covenants the law the right to serve the temple uh, they got the messiah that came they got all the promises everything they got from a spiritual perspective all the ancestors everything they had solomon and david and everybody in their lineage they got everything gentiles got nothing then Paul says this, they had everything, and then they missed the Messiah. The Gentiles had nothing. They weren't looking for it. They didn't know it. They had nothing, and they found everything. Now, the question is, why? Why do you think that's the case? Well, first of all, if we, if we would have finished uh, Isaiah 56, saying they had, the Jewish people had a calling to bring in the Messiah and then mediate the covenant, especially the new covenant. His watchmen are blind. Here's, here's Isaiah, one of the, this is not a Gentile speaking. This is Isaiah, 704 Jesus. He says, his watchmen are blind. All of them know nothing. They're mute dogs, unable to bark. Dreamers lying down who love to slumber. 
They're greedy. They're not satisfied. They're shepherds who have no understanding. They've turned to their own way, each to his own unjust gain. Come, they say, let us get wine and let us drink heavily, strong drink, and tomorrow will be more like today, only more so. Now, that's what Isaiah was saying about his own people. They're supposed to be watchmen, and they were not on the watch. So the question is, why has the Bible just eviscerated the Gentiles, clueless, uncultivated beasts? Jews, oh yeah, you you say you have the law and you have everything, Are, are you able to instruct the nations? Do you keep the law yourself or do you break the law? And not only that, you've rejected the Messiah. And he was right under your nose and all the prophets had seen it. You missed it. Question is why? I would, su- I would submit to you that the reason that God has shut us all up, the great shut up in the one new man, is because heaven, for heaven to be heaven, what's it got to be like? It's got to be full of humble and contrite people. Are there going to be anybody in heaven in the eternal sense that are up there going, you know what, I got it all. I, I, I really, you know, I'm Jewish, and uh, I not only got the Messiah, I got pretty much everything. And, or, or the Gentiles that say, we were so powerful. We started all these great companies. You should know the companies we started. We got Google, and, and, and have you ever heard of the iPhone? Do you remember what the iPhone? Of course, at that time, it'll look stupid, but Apple and Facebook and all these, look, look at all this, look at all these amazing things, you know, these great companies, although many Jewish Men and women started those companies. But look at this extraordinary. Do you think anybody's going to be bragging in heaven? Do you think there's going to be any boasting there? Not at all. Do you, do you want God to be the focus of all of eternity or your basketball heroes? I want God to be the focus for all of eternity. Why? Because I am most content when God is most glorified. I am most content when God is most glorified. See, not only that, Isaiah 8 said that they were going to stumble over the cornerstone. God had already prophesied that the Jews were going to miss Jesus as the Messiah in his first coming. Going to miss it. They thought he was going to overtake Rome. They thought he was going to be a big, you know, the Davidic prince. They thought they, they had all that in their heads. They missed it. The Gentiles were lost. We were clueless. And yet, all of a sudden, we find it. It's extraordinary. And I'll close with this. Are you ready for this? Paul says it. I think what's happening here is Paul is writing the letter to the Romans. He gets to chapter 11, and I think it hits him like just this massive thing that hits him. And listen to his language in verse 30 of Romans 11. He said, For just as you once were disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience. In other words, you Gentiles... Just like you were clueless and lost and acting like the beasts of the field, you were shown mercy because of their disobedience. See, God had prophesied, I'm going to give everything to the Jewish people, but so that they won't be too proud, I'm going to allow them to miss the Messiah for the most part. Not all, obviously not all. And they'll be humbled by that. And the Gentiles, they had nothing. So... They are so far down, they're going to find the gospel. They're not going to have anything to brag about, although we've tried for 2,000 years to brag about it and at times persecuted the Jewish people, which is absurd, had nothing to do with Jesus. He said, and by the way, in Acts chapter 4, he just said, all this was the predetermined plan of God. It's hard to understand. So these also now have been disobedient that because of the mercy shown to you, they also may be now shown mercy. 
For God has shut up all in disobedience so that he may show mercy to everybody. Are you getting the picture here? Nobody can brag in heaven. Nobody can say, look at my spirituality. If you have a holier-than-thou attitude, like I'm just glad I'm not like the rest of these pagans, or I'm, not, I'm glad I'm not like the Jews, or the Jews say, I'm glad I'm not like the nations, nobody can brag anymore. Everybody's been humbled by this plan. Everybody. Nobody stands tall. Only Jesus emerges as being glorified and tall. And because of that, we actually are sane now. We're not religious bigots or religious fanatics or religious... We are sane. The gospel makes us all so humble and contrite that we worship. We can never judge anybody because we were disobedient at one time. And we've been shown by his mercy, not by our good actions. I think Paul's finally getting this and he's going, this is it. Everybody has to shut up. We all failed. We all failed. And then he finishes with simply this as we close. Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Wow. This is a great, great plan. You had to show yourself to a people so that they would prophesy about him so that we in the 21st century would look back and go, look at all the prophecies he fulfilled. Not just somebody who just shows up on the scene and goes, well, you know, I'd like for you to believe me. Well, what, what do you base your, well, I had an experience. I had a dream. I, I, I got something out of a cave. I got something in a, behind a tree. I got something, you know, the Lord spoke to me this, now follow me. Well, you let them kill you and then raise from the dead, and then we'll see. Look, this is the plan. And he says, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. Who's known the mind of the Lord that he would become his counselor? Who's first given to him that he might be paid back? For from him and through him and to him are all things. Oh, to him be the glory forever. Isn't that beautiful? See, that's the message. That's why I, I, I can stand. I have had many conversations. We'll continue with my Jewish friends. According to Paul, according to Jesus, according to the people who have changed, that, you know, Jesus has changed our life. He said, don't say this. You're offending people. I said, if you're separate from Christ, you're separate from God. And to my Gentile friends who are anti-Semitic in any way or, or look down upon the Jewish people, I say, you're crazy. It's because of their disobedience that you were shown mercy. Are you crazy? Anybody who walks in pride, spiritually or otherwise, looking down from the Jewish side or from the Gentile side, does not get Paul's great doxological clothes and going, his ways are unsearchable, unsearchable, unfathomable, profound. Folks, that's the gospel. So when we are in Israel next week, we will be with Jews and Gentiles. We will be having this. And so I want to close with this worship song, and I'm going to come back and pray. This is Jewish artists and Gentile artists together on top. We've played it before, but on top of a building in Jerusalem, worshiping together. Do you get the magnitude of that in your day and time? Jews and Gentiles, the one new man, all shut up in disobedience, no pride here, worshiping Jesus from Jerusalem, 